Please be seated. First John chapter 5. In the first 13 verses of of chapter 5, the Apostle John is going to lay out a lot of things, but the main point that he's making is that salvation is only available through faith in Christ, through faith in Jesus as the Christ and as uh, the Son of God and God the Son. He declares in verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Everyone who is truly born again by the Holy Spirit, will believe in Jesus as the Christ. And uh, that's uh, one of the ways in which that's the way that we're born again, is the recognition that He is the Christ, He is the promised Messiah, He is the promised Savior of the world. He's going to get into the fact that He is also divine a little bit later. But nobody, the whole issue in that, that three words there, born of God, that's the whole issue in, in life, is one gets into heaven by being born of God or born again. And whoever's been born again isn't going to believe anything other than Jesus or lesser than Jesus than that he is uh, the promised uh, Messiah. And then notice he goes on to say, and everyone who loves him... Uh, that is the Father, born of God. Everyone who loves Him, the Father, who begot, uh, also loves Him who is begotten of Him. So uh, no Christian should ever say, well, I love God, but uh, I don't know about Christians. <laughs> I mean, we all understand that a little bit. I mean, there might be a if you've had a rough Christian or two in your life or whatever, and that's, that's one of my functions, by the way, uh, as it relates to you. Was the, the old uh, you know, gag related to the thing was that um, it was only the floodwaters outside of the ark that you know, made the smell inside of the ark bearable. And that's uh, one of the things about being in the body of Christ. What are the alternatives? <laughs> They're much worse. So, but we are to have a love. We've been born again into a family, and and God is the father of a family. And if uh, to be a parent, but I'll speak of a father here. Uh, but a father takes his role very, very seriously, and uh, he has ideas about what he wants his family to be like. And and there are things that we can do as children that allow the father to enjoy his role. And, uh, and so one of the ways that we can allow our Heavenly Father to enjoy His role as Father is to love one another in the family, in the body of Christ. And, and, and so that makes it a lot, a lot more enjoyable for, for Him if we all just, you know, get along uh, together. So if we love God, we're going to love His, His children too. I think one of the great experiences in life is... Uh, to be somewhere uh, outside of Modesto, but beyond that, to be outside of Modesto as a Christian and, uh, and run into another Christian. 
You can be on the other side of the world or you can be across the country or in another part of the state or something and somehow you identify this other person as a Christian, maybe in an airport or in some deal, and, it be, and there's instant fellowship with them, instant koinonia with, with them because we're part of the same family. And, and whenever you run into a Christian in that kind of an environment, I mean, it makes everything that much more special because, because you've, you've done that. And so, you know, what a joy it is to be a part of the same family and, and to think about the rest of the family, to pray for them, thank the Lord for them, for their walk with the Lord, their faithfulness to the Lord, and, and all over this community and, and all over, all over the, the world. Now, he goes on and he talks about what this love... Uh, for one another is going to look like in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. So how can I know that I really love uh, the rest of the family? When we love God, number one, and then number two, and keep His commandments. What will this love, uh, family love that keeps a family unit together, keeps the body of Christ together, what will it look like? Group hugs. There's a little, nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's your home fellowship or somewhere, some, but anyway, uh, nothing wrong with that or that kind of a deal. But so this love's a little bit, you know, a little stronger than than that. Notice he says in verse two, this love will be characterized by obedience to God's commandments, and and so, in a healthy family, when is the family at peace? Families at peace when the whole family's obeying the rules of the family. I mean, there, there's, no, there's no single thing, I think, that is a, a more miserable position to be in life than to have a child in rebellion in the home. You can have virtually every other blessing in life going on. All of the rest of the kids are, are uh, obedient and they're making the family the wonderful thing that it is. And you just get that one kid that just can ruin everything on, on, on that. And it's the same thing in the body of Christ. As it, what makes the, the family peaceful, what makes it a joy, not just for us. In, in loving one another, but for the, the sake of the peace of the family so that everybody else has some peace in the household, but also for the father, for the head, head of the household, is when everybody is obeying God's Word. And, and then in that way, that's my way of contributing to the peace of the family, is to obey the rules, to obey His commandments for, for the household. And that that produces that I, I'm doing what I can do for the health of, of the family. And so that love is, is demonstrated in, in, in not only toward God, but a love toward one another demonstrated in loving God and then in keeping His commandments. It makes this Christian family what it, it, God wants it to be, but what is best for the rest of the body of Christ. So if you sit here tonight, you are a little rebellious spiritual thing. You stop that. That's what the passage is saying. It's saying a little more than that. So we'll poke you in the eye if you don't stop or something like that. But get into the, become a part of the family like this. And start to obey Him and love God in that way. And that, that's good for, for everybody else too. And, and, it, and, and he, he deserves it. I mean, he's, he's worthy of that, 
that much respect and more, isn't he? And then he tells us here uh, concerning his commandments, he says, oh boy, you know, that mom and dad have rules and then God has his rules and this is the most miserable experience in life. For this is the love of God, not, not my love for God. This is the love of God uh, toward us, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not grievous. Every single commandment that God has in His Word is written out of a love for us. Every one of them is in the book for our good. He didn't look and say, you know, wow, uh, I want this book to be about three times thicker than it is, and so I put a whole, I, I got, yeah, there's about three quarters of the commands that are pretty worthless in here. Now, he's, every command that He's put in the book, they're commands that are good for us. Every single one of these commands is an expression of his love toward us. And all you have to do is to be a father, again, to understand that, to be a parent. We don't give commands to our children, and we are way down on the scale from God. We don't give commands to our children because we want to ruin their lives. We give commands, and then we hold them to those commands sometimes at tremendous personal cost why because we love them because we love them enough to do that and what is true of us in a very very small way is is infinitely true related to god his commandments are not burdensome now there there are, there are easier things to do in life than be a christian and, and live obediently to God's Word. Because the whole flow of the world is in the opposite direction of obedience to God. So it's not the easiest thing to do in the world. There's a lot that's mounted up against us in, in, in doing that. But there is something harder than obeying God. And that's disobeying Him. And that's why we gave our lives to the Lord, many of us. Say, man, this is killing me out here. <laughs> Anybody smart running this universe or something? And we come to know the Lord. And that's what I think about. Sometimes you oh, it's so hard to be a Christian. I don't know if I'm going to survive. I'll tell you, people, they're so mean sometimes. And they just reject me because I love them. And everything. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go where it's easy, back into the world. Ha! That's why we came to know the Lord. There's nothing easy about that at all. Know the Lord. This is the life, the one that we have. His commandments are not burdensome. Verse 4, for whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so uh, the, this um, love that God has, has given us and, and the love that he speaks of here, it overcomes the world. And it, 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 it's not a pushover in, in the face of the world. It's, it's got the stuff that is necessary to go against the stream of the world. And being a part of this family and being born again into this family. We're born into this world physically, but then a spiritual birth allowed us to be born into the family of God. It is only that birth that allows us to overcome the world. There is no other way. Because there is, in Christ Jesus, there is the, the body of Christ, the family of God, and then there's the world. There's nothing else in between the two. There's no gray area. 
It's like J. Vernon McGee said, there's only two groups of people, there's the saints and the ain'ts. That can be offensive, but it makes the point, doesn't it? It's true. And, and so this is the only way not to be overcome by the world. So, so you say, well, you know, sometimes this can be hard and all. Yeah, but, but we're not being overcome uh, by the world. And it's our, our saving faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, His work upon the cross that has resulted in the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and giving us the power to stand up against the world that's in rebellion against God. And it's good to stand against it. It's good to stand against it, isn't it? I mean, there's a war that goes on within us. One day we'll be done with it. And, and uh, the, the world, the flesh, the devil, it will have no appeal to us in the smallest way. But how thankful we are tonight is, is God's children. When we look at the world, when we, when we watch what the world produces, what it did to us, what it, made, what it fashioned us into, and we cooperated, we're not victims. And, and to look at, look at all of that and to say, thank you, Lord, that I don't have to walk in that anymore. I don't have to be that anymore. I don't have to live that anymore. And it's all for one reason. Because of the fact that we've been born again into this family. And one of the things that John is saying is, no Gnostic can offer that to you. No false teacher can offer that to you. The power not to be overcome by the world. No Mormon, no Jehovah Witness, no Buddhist, no Muslim, no anybody can offer that to you. That comes through Jesus Christ. And what a joy it is to be able to overcome and live an overcoming life in, in the face of the world. And then notice in verse 5, and it's our faith in Christ that has allowed that. Verse 5, who is he who overcomes the world, but he that believes Jesus is the Son of God. So he's spoken about uh, believing in Jesus as the Christ in verse 1. But now he raises things a little bit. He talks about believing in the overcomer is one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, this love that God has given us will not compromise concerning Jesus. That is not a loving thing to do toward God, toward the body of Christ, or toward uh, anybody else. Where, you know, Aunt B in the family doesn't want to believe that Jesus is the Christ, doesn't want to believe that He is the Messiah or that He is the Son of God. Fine, people can choose what they want to do with Him, but you'll never get me to say that He's something different than that. That is not loving toward God, and it's not loving toward the body of Christ to compromise, and it's not loving toward the person. I, I, again, I remember a story when I was and just saved, I mean, within probably two years of, of being born again. And the pastor of the church there at the Calvary Chapel in Napa, we're doing this big outreach into Napa, and we rented the big auditorium in town and everything. And, and the pastor was up there teaching concerning Jesus, and it was kind of a crusade calling people to know the Lord. And I, had, uh, I was on the, one of the deacons kind of on the back door, and, and uh, a woman came up to the door. I had gone to school with her son. I was so excited that she was there at the back door listening. She'd just been going through the hallway. It was an administrative school kind of setting. Going through the hallway and she stopped and she listened. And, uh, and, I, and, and she's getting ready to leave a little bit. You know, I feel her stirring. And I, I said, do you believe in Jesus? And she says, not like that. 
Well, that is what it is. Sorry, you know, on, on things I didn't say that to her, but I don't say everything that comes into my mind, only to you. But, uh, <laughs> but any, so you don't cave on that. She didn't change my mind on anything like that. But, but I did say something like, that's what, that's what he is. And that's the way to have uh, everlasting life. So a love for God isn't going to compromise concerning Jesus, that he is the Son of God. And to call him the Son of God is, is, it was the understanding in ancient times, was referred to the fact, and today, that he was divine, that he is God in human flesh. And, and, and again, I want to mention this one more time because we're going to finish this tonight and it's going to be about 18 years before we get back to it again. And the Lord's due back any day, so I doubt we'll hit First John again here uh, together. We are not free to redefine Jesus how we want to redefine Him. The Bible has defined Him. Heaven has defined Him. He is who He is. It is not my place to redefine Him. It is my place to accept Him for who and what He is. God's description of Him. Again, I go back to the Jehovah Witnesses. The Jehovah Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is divine. They believe that He is a great angel of some kind. But here you have John speaking very, very clearly. And First John has tremendous insights related to refuting Jehovah Witness uh, doctrine. But here is, is John coming and saying, no, he is the Son of God. He is, he is divine. And, and Jesus himself declared, John chapter 8, verse 24, speaking to the religious leaders of his day. And, and he said, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, in the original language, when you look in your Bible, that he will be in italics. In other words, it's an insertion by the translators. What Jesus said to them, uh, if you do not believe that I am and, and he ascribes deity to himself, then you will die in your sins. The reason that we are forgiven of our sins tonight is not just because some man died on the cross, or some great man, or some great teacher, or some great example, or even an angel died on the cross for us. The reason that we have the forgiveness of sins tonight is because the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, died on the cross. He alone could be the sacrifice without spot and without blemish. You change Him and you don't have a sacrifice that washes away sins. And, and so that's why you camp there. And that's why John camps there. And he doesn't move. We don't redefine Jesus, and it isn't a loving thing uh, to, to do that. And, and so here he is. He said, uh, and who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He is divine. And this is he who came by water. Jesus, speaking of him, who came by water. What is water? Water is the fluid of birth, isn't it? But he didn't just come by water, he came by blood. And blood is what? It is fluid of death. And so when John speaks and says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, he is saying that Jesus was fully the Messiah, he was the Christ, and he was God the Son at his birth and at his death. 
Now, the Gnostics were teaching that he wasn't the Son of God at all. The Gnostics were teaching that Jesus was not the Christ, but that a Christ spirit came upon him at the time of his water baptism and he began his public ministry. It left him before he died upon the cross. John comes in and says, no, no, no. He was God the Son and he was the Christ from the moment he was born. That was what he was always, but born there all the way through to his, his death. He's always been that. He was that all the way through. And he wasn't a phantom. A lot of them were teaching that Jesus was just a phantom. But phantoms aren't born. A physical birth into the world and phantoms don't die. So he he was God in human flesh. John's refuting the false doctrines of of, uh, the day. And, And not only by water he said but by water and blood and it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth and and so the holy spirit testifies to the fact that jesus came by blood the holy spirit testifies to the fact that he came by the water and and the blood so you got all these false teachers testifying and saying other things about jesus john comes in and says let me settle the issue for you real simply the holy spirit declares him to be the christ to be the son of god at his birth his death all the way through everything in between forget what the gnostics are trying uh, to to teach you He said, for there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father and the Word, referring to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on the earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree as one. Again, the Holy Spirit, uh, the water, the blood, all testifying to the fact Jesus was the Christ and the Son of God at his birth, at his death, everywhere in between and, and uh, beyond. Then he says in verse 9, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he, the Father, has testified of uh, his Son. And so this is the testimony not only of, of the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus, but also the Father. Now, who am I going to believe? I'm going to believe God. I'm going to believe false teachers. Well, that's tremendous. To, so you've got all these other people testifying a lot of different things concerning Jesus. Who knows him better than the Father? And the testimony that the Father gives concerning him. Verse 10, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, doesn't believe God concerning what he has said about Jesus' son because he has not believed the testimony that God has given uh, uh, of his son. So to fail, give you an idea, here we are, we're in a a funny place. Here we live on planet Earth. I haven't been to heaven yet. I'm going there. One day I'll understand how how things are processed up there and how, how clean everything is and how they see all of that. I, I don't understand heaven exactly yet. But I've got my reservations for it. And, and so, but here he's going to give us a glimpse at how heaven uh, interprets uh, and how the Father uh, interprets the rejection of the Son. 
And any person that rejects Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah, and as the Son of God, is calling God a liar because He has testified to all of that concerning His Son. Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Jesus was water baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration and all kinds of places as the miracles and the teachings and all of these things testified to Jesus' claims concerning, concerning Himself. Why would a person reject Jesus as, as their personal Lord and Savior once they realize their need for Him and that He is heaven's provision for the forgiveness of our sins? That person is looking and saying, God's a liar. I don't believe it. And God takes it personally that, that a person is calling Him a liar, rejecting what it is that, that He has, has said. And so... John's teaching that there's, there's no middle ground related to Jesus. We have to, we have to accept the Father's assessment of Jesus and any redefinition of Jesus makes me a liar. If I, if I ever got up in, in the pulpit here and said, well, Jesus isn't really the Christ and, uh, and Jesus really isn't the Son of God. He was a great teacher and a great example. You know, you should... You should you Liar, liar, liar. <laughs> and it'd be okay to do that. That should, that should be the reaction of, of a biblical Christian. And how many liberal denominations and people who claim to be pastors just like I do hold that position? They say, no, he wasn't this, and no, the Son of God, no, I don't, and all, and everything. And of course, they're all declining like crazy numerically. Why? The Spirit's not going to say amen to a lie. He says amen to a truth in people's hearts. And, and so anyone that does that clerical garb, whatever, they are a liar. They're calling God a liar who cannot lie, which makes them a liar. Now, let me say this. Is it, I mean, uh, you watch the, any of the like, news shows and stuff like that, and they get the politicians on there. Nothing, there are godly politicians. Oh, I pray for them. But anyway, the, the, there are good ones in there, and it's a tremendous place of, of service to a nation, and even, even a service to the Lord. Uh, you think about Daniel. You think about Joseph. God called them to those kind of positions. But you watch those TV shows and the, and the interviews and all, and they won't call one another a liar. So I, don't, I don't think that that properly represents the truth. And I think you know that. I mean, they just work around the whole kind of, kind of a thing. You know, I, I, I like clarity. And, uh, and, and so here you have clarity. I can't misunderstand, uh, misunderstand this. He who does not believe God has, uh, believe God has made him a liar. And, and, and thus, they must be a liar themselves. I, I know how to teach 1 John in, in such a way as you remove every single barb from it. That, yeah, we can have fun with it. And, and I know how to make this, as somebody has said about, about making something so lukewarm that if it were medicine, it couldn't heal anyone. If it were poison, it couldn't kill anyone. But, but we need a medicine today. 
in walking with the Lord in this day. I mean, the whole world is so bold in its sin and its endeavor to come against us. We've got to have a comparable boldness by the Spirit of God. It needs to look like Christ. But, but uh, so I know how to, to do this thing and not offend a single person and all, all of that kind of stuff. But I, I, I'm, I'm too old for all of that now. I mean, you just got to lay the thing out. It's what it is, it, it, and it's what it needs to be. It's what it's always needed to be, and it's what we need to hear today. And, and uh, you know, sometimes, well, I won't get into that. See what restraint uh, I'm exhibiting before you at this moment. But, you know, I might. I uh, just... Uh... No. Verse 11. He speaks of the testimony in verse 10. And then what is the testimony? And this is the testimony that God has given us. Given is a, is a free gift word, isn't it? It's a gift. That God has given us everlasting life. It's already ours. And that life is in His Son. You make Him other than the Son. And you do not have everlasting life. That life is in the Son. And John wants us to be sure of our salvation as Christians. We're in the right place. Gnostics, false teachers trying to pull us into all kinds of different places and all of that. He's telling us we're in the right place. Continue to believe in Him as the Christ. Continue to believe in Him as the Son of God, as what the Scriptures teach Him to be. You're the ones that have everlasting life. Don't be pulled away from that. And He, verse 12, who has the Son, has, present tense now, has life, everlasting life. And He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's as clear as can be. And I had somebody come to me this morning, and he asked me a question. It's a good question. So if you're sitting here tonight, um, I'm not criticizing it. But it's a question that uh, I get asked every once in a while. And, and somebody comes up, and, and he had been, he had been uh, asked by a person or told by a person, and, and, and people come up and say, well, uh, don't the Jews get saved a different way? Is there another way for them to be saved? Are they in some kind of a special category? And this is how Gentiles get saved. This is how the rest of the world gets saved. But God's going to pull another way of salvation out of His hat somewhere in the way, and He's going to save all of the Jews. Well, you go right back to the Scriptures, and, and as, he, as He speaks uh, right here, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jew, Gentile, Martian. We all get saved the same way. If, if one group can be saved uh, apart from Jesus, then that means there's a, there is another way to be saved other than Him. And if there's another way to be saved, He didn't need to die on the cross. He was wasting His time. So this starts to go all over the place, places you don't want to go on things. No, we all get saved the same way. It's just as clear as can be. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. These false teachers are coming to you. They are telling you 
that they're a part of the deeper club, uh, life club. They have found a deeper Jesus. They have found a deeper walk with God and all of their different things and shenanigans and all. And John comes in and says, they don't have any life with God. None. They don't have spiritual life with Him now. They don't have eternal life with Him. No matter what they say, there's nothing going on between them and God because everything that happens between God and an individual human being happens through the Son. Salvation is found in a person. Not in Calvary Chapel or non-Calvary Chapel or whatever you want to call it. It's all found in a person. Don't mess with the person. These things I have written to you who believe. So he's writing to us as Christians here. And, and he says, I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And, and basically he's saying, he's not telling them something they didn't already know, but it's something they needed to be encouraged in. And, and, he, and he says, I want you to know that you have everlasting life now in Christ. Don't let any false teacher come and tell you that you don't and try to pull you away to something else by telling you they offer it to you. You've already got it. And it's a wonderful protection against false teaching. And here's another reason that he wrote these things and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, and so that they would just continue to trust Jesus as He's defined in the Scriptures here, continue in just a simple relationship with Jesus for who and what He is. Now, this is the confidence that we have in Him, in Jesus. And only one who is in Jesus has this confidence. This is the confidence that we have uh, in Him, that if we ask anything according to his will God's will he hears us and if we know that he hears us whatever we ask so he repeats that we ask verse 14 we ask verse 15 we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him and and so he begins to close the epistle with some different exhortations and and this exhortation has to do with prayer Christians possess a confidence, as he speaks about it there, uh, doesn't he, in verse 14? Now, this is the confidence. We have a confidence in prayer that no one else in the world has. It, it, because, because nobody else's prayer gets to the Father. Except the one that says, Uncle, <laughs> help me now. And... Uh, I believe in your son and I want to be one of your children. The rest of the prayers, they just bounce around. Why? Because there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ, Jesus. I can have no relationship with God, a salvation kind of thing, this way, apart from Him. Now, that's offensive to people. But if you could, apart from Him, then He did not need to do what He did in order for us to have this relationship. And he did need to do what he did for us to have the relationship. Once again, verse 14. This is the confidence we have. In, if we ask anything according to his will, 
Now that, that's, that if is a, is a qualifying uh, uh, word, is it? That if, if we ask anything according to his will. Now you got the, the uh, health and wealth doctrine of the faith movement that's been around for a long time and still going strong today. And the, the kind of it called the name it and claim it group that all you have to do is just ask, you know, uh, ask, you don't ask, you just kind of demand or I guess you just ask something of God. And, uh, and no matter uh, what that is, you just ask, and if you believe it uh, enough that you're going uh, to get that, you're going to get that from him. And, and I, I have, a couple times in the course of, of being a pastor, I've prayed in a particular situation where there's been a word of faith person that was a part of the prayer. I've had him rebuke me after when, when I've prayed, Lord, you just express your Father's heart in this situation. You just, your will, it can't be improved upon. It's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect, you tell us, in your word. And you just do your will in this situation. And, and then accuse me of a lack of faith related to that or praying some kind of an inferior prayer. But look what John says right here. He says, if you ask anything according to his will. Prayer is, uh, when, when we pray, it, we are praying in submission to the will of God. Prayer is not the means by which I get my will done in, in heaven, even as it's currently being done on earth. That's not how, how that works. If, if prayer was a weapon that I could use against God to get my way, I would be afraid to pray. I'd, I would be afraid of that kind of power on, on things. No, it's wonderful to come to Him and submit to his will in, in uh, prayer. So if we ask anything according to his will, when we pray a prayer and we, and we say, and we close it, and in Jesus' name, when we say in Jesus' name, it's not the equivalent of saying tap, tap, no erases. Uh, it is to say, I, I am praying this in Jesus' nature. And Lord, everything that I have prayed in this prayer that is consistent with his nature, honor that. And if I have prayed anything that is inconsistent with his nature or his will, disregard that. That's a safe, safe way to pray. So when we pray anything according to His will, how do we know what His will is, as, as is revealed in, in the Bible? Then He hears us, and if we know that He hears us, then we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. When He knows His best to answer those. Why, that whole when issue. I mean, when I pray for a Rolls Royce, I want it fast. Don't you? If we pray in His will, you say, I know what His promises are. I pray in accordance with this promise. And then we just sit back and we say, in, in the right time, He's heard me. I know He's heard me. And so when it doesn't happen in five minutes, it doesn't mean that I wonder if He didn't hear me. No, He's heard me. And, and the answer to that prayer is coming in accordance with with his, his will. So we have a confidence in prayer that no Gnostic or false teacher could, act, could give to, to any other person. So who would want to abandon? I mean, the, the, the blessing that we have in prayer as a child of God, as I wouldn't want to do, to do that. Our, our prayers make a difference. Jesus would never have us engage in an activity that was uh, vain or repetitious. 
Our prayers make a difference in, in the world. And we've got that confidence that no one else has. And then he gives, as he's closing and giving some kind of final exhortations, he gives us some exhortations about sinning brothers. In verse 16, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin... So we're talking about Christians, which does not lead to death, and the idea is eternal death. So the person's backslidden, or the person is engaging in, in, in sin, uh, then he will ask, we can intercede for that brother or that sister, and he will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. And so here is intercession is encouraged by John. Uh, four backslidden Christians or, or uh, wayward believers here. But it is only uh, intercession encouraged for the sin that does not lead to, um, to eternal death. Now he starts to talk about that sin. Now in the other part of verse 16, there is sin leading to death. And the idea is, is eternal death. I do not say that he should pray about that. So now he moves to, to a non-Christian here in that there is sin that leads to eternal death. Apostasy leads to eternal death. Uh, a, a rejection of Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior, that, that leads to eternal death. Only one sin that, that won't be forgiven uh, in eternity and... Uh, and, and that is a, the lifelong rejection of Jesus Christ to my dying breath. Resistance of the work of the Holy Spirit to bring me to a saving faith in Christ. That's the only sin that cannot be forgiven in, in eternity. And if a person live, is living in that condition and then dies in that condition, I cannot pray to the Lord and say, Lord, would you please save them anyway? That's not a prayer that the Lord can answer. He can't say yes to that. Because they have, in the words of Hebrews chapter 10, of how much worse punishment do you suppose that he will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God Underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he, has sancti he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't pray for people who don't know the Lord. I think all of our prayer lists include praying for people that we know, friends, family members, and, and all prayer lists here at church and all praying for people that don't know the Lord yet. And, and we should pray for them. We can pray to God, God, make them willing. We know you won't touch their will, but you can sure make them willing. <laughs> he did me. We can pray for uh, the Lord to bind up Satan's influence in their life. We can pray for God to bring Christians into their life and, and be an example to them to speak the truth into their life. We can pray for their heart to be open to the things of, of, of the Lord. We can pray for all of these things. But we cannot ask God to save them despite the fact that they have not trusted in Christ or rejected Him and they die in that condition. There's nothing that can be done of a positive nature toward that situation. That, that's, not a, that's not where we go in prayer and that's not what prayer is there for. All unrighteousness, verse 17, is sin. One of the greatest definitions of sin in the Bible. 
All unrighteousness, all unrightness in the eyes of God is sin. And there is sin not leading to death or eternal death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. And he's going back, he's recapping things, he's closing out the letter now, so he's going back and declaring the theme of the book again. He says, we know that whoever is born of God, born again, does not sin, present tense, talking about living a lifestyle of sin, willful, deliberate, habitual practice of sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, let me say one thing, because I don't want, I don't want number eight, verse 18 to be misunderstood. God, God has given us the ability by His Holy Spirit in, in our lives to never sin as Christians. There is that power. He supplies us all day, all night, every day and night of our lives with the will to do God's good pleasure and the power to do of God's good pleasure. So when I sin, I can never blame God as a child of God. I have no interest in blaming God related to that. But you know, if you sin at 10 o'clock in the morning and you go to God and you say, God, I messed up there and that didn't look like you at all or your word. I sinned. I missed the mark there. I ask you to forgive me and, and help me to do better the next time. 10.15. Not that same thing maybe. You'll wait till 1 o'clock to do that same thing again. But something else, and you miss it, and you say, Oh, Lord, I, just, I hate... Oh, would you forgive me of that? And all The conviction of sin, the awareness of sin in my life is an evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Here we're talking about a deliberate, willful, purposeful living in sin, no conviction, and I don't care kind of a deal. So I don't want anybody to walk away here thinking, boy, you know, sometimes I struggle with sin and I guess I must not be born again. That's not what he's talking about. That, if we're, if we're, if that kind of category, we need to really realize who we are in Christ and grow in that, the victory that is ours related to sin. But I want to make sure that just because you're stumbling around and all of that and all of us do and everything, and sometimes, you know, you're going days at a time and maybe even weeks where there's hardly any difficulty at all and everything and, you've, you know, you check under your shirt to see if there isn't a big S on your chest, you know, and, and, and everything and you get all proud and all. And then you hit another time and it's like one nostril out of the water and that kind of thing and we can begin to misunderstand First John is saying, I'm not born again. That's not what he's talking about there. Well, the fact that we want to walk with Him, we want to live for Him, we want people to see Him in our life. It's an evidence of the Spirit in, in our life. And, and, and he says, again at the end of verse 18, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one, speaking of the devil, does not touch him. A holy life keeps us beyond the effective reach of the devil. It doesn't keep us beyond the reach of the devil. <laughs> you know, there's uh, some sections of the body of Christ that believe that we're in the millennium right now. We're in the thousand-year reign of Christ. 
perfect peace <laughs> all over the world. And everything. One of the characteristics of, of the millennium is that Satan is bound for a thousand years during that thousand year reign. If he's bound, as the old joke goes, uh, man is he on a long leash. So now he reaches us, but there's no need for him to be effective in, in his working against us in, in, uh, as, as Christians. And so uh, the wicked one does not touch him. And the idea of touching doesn't mean that he can't, you know, touch us or, or afflict us in, in, in any way as, as God would allow it. But it has the idea of controlling us. Taking, uh, taking us over and in, in injuring us because we don't have the power to resist Him. We, we do. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. That's interesting what John is saying there in verse 19. We know that we're of God. He's writing this little group of Christians. It's a very small minority in the world in those days. Much smaller minority than it is now. Are Christians like crazy all over the world? It's wonderful what God is doing by His Spirit. But they were a very, very small, uh, persecuted minority in those days. And the whole world is following after the stuff that people follow after in the world. And it's easy when you're in that small little minority to think, well, maybe, maybe we're missing it and they've all got it right. Maybe, maybe, we're, maybe we're wrong and they're right. And John's just coming in and saying, numbers have nothing to do with right and wrong. The Word of God defines right and wrong. Don't worry about how many people are following. And I remember Jesus, um, when he, in the Gospels, when He spoke to the one uh, to the disciples, and, and he was talking about harder for a rich man to enter in, you know, and it, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into heaven and that kind of thing. And the disciples said, well, who then can enter in, you know? How many will be saved, they asked him at one time. And Jesus said, well, I think, I think it will be roughly uh, six billion. Before, No, he didn't say that. He said, how many will be saved? His answer was classic. He said, you enter in at the straight gate. Narrow is, is the way that leads to everlasting life. Straight is the gate. Broad is the way. Broad is the gate that leads to everlasting life. In essence, he was saying, don't worry about everybody else. You get in. You get in. Don't worry about the whole numeric thing. And that's what John is, is saying here. Listen, you're on the right page. Don't worry about how many are still under the sway of the devil. If God can save you, and me, he can save anybody as soon as they're willing to allow that happen. So spend, better to spend time instead of worrying about that, interceding than for others. And we know, verse 20, that the Son of God has come. Oh, man, just stays on that Son of God theme, doesn't he? Has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. True, true, true. In other words, you are in the truth. You are in the truth about Jesus and who He is, 
and you are in the truth about salvation and what a walk with God looks like, don't let anyone move you from that truth. Sometimes you just have to be told that, don't you? You're in the truth. You ever feel like you're just a little too fanatical once in a while as a Christian? Oh, man, I've just drawn the lines too hard and everything like that. I'll just ease up a little bit and just go with the flow and everything, you know, and the whole deal. And we're all a little bit different, you know, in terms of of study. But sometimes you can feel, you know, that that whole, you know, just, you know, cave here a little bit like that. He said, no, this is the truth. don't, Don't move from the truth, John says. You've got it. Don't, don't let them come to you and tell you they've got a new improved Jesus or salvation or anything else. You're in the truth. And when you've got the truth, a move from the truth is always a step down. They cannot, they have nothing to offer you. Nothing to offer you. Little children, he said, and, and it's just an affectionate term for them as he closes out the book. He said, keep yourself from idols. Amen. He's not very wordy in his closings, is he? <laughs> Boom, gone, whoa! John, where, hey? He's just out of there like that. But when he says, keep yourself from idols, I mean, you look at that and say, I mean, is there a section of the letter missing? Is that a way to close? I mean, just keep yourself from idols, amen. Bye. <laughs> God bless him, people to get to the point. And... And, of course, ancient world, same thing today. The the whole world was filled with idolatry. And idolatry is the worship of a created thing. But not all idolatry is the worship of some object, physical object that man has made. Idolatry is just as equal if I worship a man-made object idea that's idolatry too and he tells them to stay away from the idols and stay away from the teaching behind them it's all idolatry it's all man-made stay in the things of the Lord and he closes with an amen the word amen means so be it that's the truth that's the truth bye isn't that great (laughs) what a brother it's going to be great to see him in heaven, isn't it? And, and so here he, he ends the epistle. And uh, such a needed epistle today. Again, false teachers coming in, two Christians coming in and saying, Oh, yes, what you have with Jesus sounds very, very nice. Yes, yes, indeed. But we're getting into the deeper things. Deeper things. And, and we can show you how to have... A, a deep, intimate, personal relationship with God that you will never get on the path that you're on. And that's, that was the seduction. And John has all the way through the letter, he has come back and, and just told them that what these false teachers are offering you, they cannot provide you because you already have the deepest, most personal, intimate relationship with God available this side of heaven. Don't listen to them. And by way of review, and I close with this, where's that deep, personal, intimate relationship with God found? Chapter 1, walking in the light rather than in darkness. 
chapters 1 and 2, confessing our sins when we do sin and then leaving it with the advocate to take care of the heavenly scene related to that, chapters 1 and 2. And then in chapter 2, by obeying God's commandments. That's how we have that intimate relationship with God. Number 4 in chapter 2, we must not love the world or the things of the world. And then number five, we must reject false teaching and teachers. And then again in chapters 2 and 3, we need to be watching and waiting for Jesus' coming at the rapture of the church. Anybody else watching and waiting for the Lord's return? <laughs> I've talked with a couple of you in the last couple of days and a couple of you even today on that, that issue. And the scriptures talk about waiting for the Lord and the word, one of the passages talks about waiting for Him and the word in the original language means up on your tiptoes. Get another couple inches out, you know, looking at the horizon. Man, am I doing that? I was talking to one of the fellows, he was coming into the church tonight and he said, you know, to watch the evening news, it's like watching a prophecy conference. It's the truth, isn't it? What we're seeing, the Lord's coming back. And this is the best relationship you can have with God, this side of heaven. And man, if it's this good, this side of heaven, whoo, what's it going to be like there? Probably need a new body, won't we? He's got one waiting for us. He's thought of everything. Let's stand together and we'll pray.